Welcome back to The Lives of Writers, a podcast presented by Autofocus, a literary publisher of artful autobiographical writing, which you can find today at autofocuslit.com or on Twitter and Instagram at autofocuslit. I'm the publisher of Autofocus, Michael Wheaton. Today on the show, I talk with Jody Kiesner. Jody Kiesner is the author of Under My Bed and Other Essays, which is out now from University of Nebraska Press. Her essays have appeared or are forthcoming in LARB, Portishana, Brevity, The Rumpus, The Normal School, Essay Daily, and many more. She is the editor-in-chief of The Linden Review. All right, let's get to it. This is my conversation with Jody Kiesner. When I was young, when my sister and I were young, my parents used to drive us out to Hanson's Lake, which was kind of this, at the time was this like working class lake near the Platte River, um, where a lot of retirees had bought these really small one bedroom, two bedroom cabins. There were some nice homes there too, but my grandparents lived there and my parents would basically pick us up at the end of the school year and drop us off at Hanson's Lake with my grandmother, Grace, and we'd spend the entire summer there, which was, to me, you know, paradise, because I could spend all day swimming, and she taught us how to water ski, but she also curated my summer book collection. She loved to read, and I remember a book that stays with me is Maya Angelou. I know why the cage bird sings. And I remember that was really important to her. Uh, She gave me the Nancy Drew mystery series, Jonathan Livingston, Livingston Siegel, you know, the books that she introduced me to when I was young, I later realized she didn't introduce them to me just because they were good, which they were, and she loved them, but also because my grandmother kind of felt like an outsider in our own family. She was Mm -hmm. very eccentric. And there was something in her, she thought that I felt that way too. And I did a little bit because of my adoption. And she gave me books where maybe I would feel less of an outsider. But that is when I became a reader during those summers you know, spent on Hanson's Lake. So I, I read constantly um, and became an, Eng- I did become an English major, but as an English major, I was trained in, in critical thinking and critical writing and not necessarily creation of my own work. Um, I did, when I was in sixth grade, we had to write fiction stories. And I wrote this story called Treasure. And it was totally unoriginal story about a woman who falls off a horse and is paralyzed. And and the daughter has to make peace with this horse named Treasure and with her and, you know, with her mom's condition. And but I won a young author competition. And that was sixth grade. And I got to go to Wayne State College and read part of it. I remember that and it was really exciting, but I don't think I thought, oh, I can actually really do this until I was do this instead of the the more kind of academic study, which was my undergrad and then my master's program. And 
towards the end of my master's program, uh, I was 29 because I'd had a seven year period of, of kind of making a mess out of my life. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> <laughs> I wait, I waited tables at a lot of places, but when I was 29, I took a class called modern familiar essay with the writer, John T price. And I loved the class. I loved, he was such a good teacher. And I thought we can write like this. We can do this because he was teaching all different kinds of forms. And he really encouraged me to pursue my MFA. So it took a long time before I thought I could actually do this. Hmm. And I'd been writing that whole time. I wrote for the high school newspaper. I wrote for the, my college newspaper, but it was a different kind of writing. It wasn't about me. Right. It wasn't creative nonfiction. Um, I guess I did some portrait writing, but so it wasn't until my late twenties when, when I had the courage, um, the guts to, to give it a go for real. Mm -hmm. So I guess after that, I mean, you start writing essays, I guess. Right. And what are you, what kind of subjects are you taking on when you start doing the more like creative nonfiction and writing about your life? Like what's like the first kind of stuff you explore? The first thing that I wrote for John's class was this braided essay. And one braid was about my work. So in the seven year period I had between being an undergraduate and going back to, to graduate school, I worked at a rehab facility for the severely mentally ill. And there was this man there who spoke in neologisms, word salad. Mm -hmm. And he and I became kind of friends. We would play cards at night. And I mean, obviously I was there to make sure um, he was getting the care he needed and going to his classes and, and that kind of thing too. But um, so one braid was about him and his story. You know, I used a different name, but and the other braid was about my dad and the really difficult relationship I had with him and communicating with him. That was called word salad. Mm -hmm. And much, much later it became a very different essay just about the man at the rehab facility. And I had to break those apart because I realized I was trying to say something very different about my dad than anyway, but that was my first creative nonfiction piece. And that was the, the piece I sent to get into my MFA program. And for a long, long while, I was, it was, I was a one hit wonder, like that was all <laughs> I had. And everything I wrote was horrible. And in my MFA program, I really tried to write pure memoir, the way I, the way of uh, the memoirs I had read and like the liars club and this boy's life and just writing what I thought of as traditional memoir. And I spent seven years, including my MFA program, writing this book, which was called Runaway Daughter, which has now been condensed yep. into a single chapter in uh -huh. my book, yep. <laughs> because it was this bloated thing where I tried to create scene after scene after scene after scene. And in retrospect, I can see it wasn't that good. And it wasn't that authentic. It really, I hadn't found myself, my narrative persona in my writing yet. It was some other version of me hmm. 
too optimistic, too upbeat, <laughs> you know, not going into the dark place, not admitting the dark places where my mind sometimes goes. Mm. And, and I didn't incorporate any research in that pure memoir that I wrote, which is something that my essays, I think, call me to do. I feel called to incorporate research to uh, deepen the discussion and to understand the questions I'm asking. So yeah, after seven years, I literally put a print out of that book under some sweaters and a dresser, you know, in a dresser drawer and um, eventually started the project, which is under my bed. Mm. And I guess, how did you know, in a way, I wonder, like, how did you know when reading it that it was inauthentic, something just fell off? And then, like, how did you know the answer was these more kind of like exploratory um, essays that are, you know, linked? Those are really good questions. So I left some things out. For one, I was telling part of my sister's story. So mm. there was a sort of dark family secret. And she knew she'd she'd read the book. But the more I worked on the the more it felt less like my story and more like my sister's. Mm. And I was holding back a lot of things that I wanted to say and that I felt in my day-to-day -day life, I was withholding that all from the book yeah. in an effort to make something pretty and cheerful and with a happier ending. And it was a false happy ending. Things hadn't been resolved in real life, or at least with such a neat little mm -hmm. bow. Um, and that's what made it bad writing and made it not my voice. Um, and so a lot of my early writing was academic writing because, you know, after graduating my MFA program, I got a job at, at a university and eventually I got on the tenure track. So I had to be writing and publishing and I was writing and publishing academic pieces mm -hmm. because that's what I'd been trained to do and what I knew I could place. And I don't, I don't, I think it happened in like intuitively that I wrote a, what, what was, what is now the first chapter of the book and started incorporating research the way I'd been trained to do. When I started doing that, I was just like, aha. <laughs> and it's not like other people weren't doing it. I was right. reading these sorts of essays too, but I had to do it myself to have the aha, aha moment and realize this is what feels like me bringing together this academic part of me and the way I'd been trained. And, and really, I love research mm -hmm. almost as much as I love writing. I love to research things. And then the creative part, you know, bringing it together. This, this really represents how I've, you know, the kind of, of knowledge and training I've pursued. You're finally able to blend <laughs> the, yes. the two sides. Absolutely. My parts. Yes. And so the result then is the collection. Um, fast forward time and then the collection, right? So uh, Under My Bed and Other Essays. And so like this is a collection, you know, I'd say is on uh, fear and anxiety um, of like how vulnerable to death and, and tragedy we all are basically at, at all times. Um, yes. You know, and it starts on this essay. You mentioned the first essay that kind of admits to this checking behavior that you have um, where you like look under the bed uh, and it talks and like basically it 
the first essay kind of maps out like there's a variety of reasons for this and then the book kind of explores each of these reasons and like the reasons would be like one being female um mm-hmm. the father which you mentioned earlier the kind of two selves um horror movies media <laughs> general anxiety disorder uh, serial killer stuff in the news um and you know and it and it basically i mentioned you know the resulting essays kind of mix different aspects of it throughout and it's like a processing of like why and how you are who you are <laughs> as a parent um a daughter uh, a wife your own self um and so yeah I'd, I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about kind of from you know writing that kind of first essay you know how this book came together or i guess maybe like when you realized <laughs> a lot of the stuff you were writing was turning into this kind of like linked book. Yeah, when did I realize that? So if you've ever been a person who shoots up in bed at 3 a.m. with thoughts of all these things you need to do the next day and you have to write it down. At 3 a.m., you need to write down the to-do list or you can't go back to sleep. I am that kind of person and the book represents fears that would shoot me awake at 3 a.m. or whenever, or maybe I never got to sleep. (laughs) And I had to write it down to be able to sleep. I had to write it down to get out of those dark quarters in my brain. And, you know, the first essay was something I'd been dealing with for a really long time. And my obsessive compulsive like behavior and this bizarre fear that someone was going to break in and murder me. And once I wrote it down, the focus naturally kind of shifted off of me. Once I confronted it, um, I was much less obsessed with that idea. And in fact, I can be home alone now and I don't go around checking things and I don't think someone's going to break in, but I also do not watch true crime or listen to true mm-hmm. crime podcasts if I'm going to be home alone, because then I will. Um, but I had a young daughter at the time I was writing that. And maybe because of my general anxiety disorder, I don't know, or maybe it's just something that happens with women, preg- you know, with pregnancy and all those brain changes. I had really morbid thoughts about the possibilities of my only child dying. Mm-hmm. So the ordering, you know, I started writing, I think it was the secret of water um, next for the same reason to figure out why do I always think about this? I mean, I would look up statistics on how many children die in youth. I would get mm-hmm. just morbidly obsessed with it. I would think about, my high school class and how many people didn't make it to adulthood. And so I had to, I had to work it out in writing in order to calm myself. And when I had Lily, the fear for myself just sort of shifted onto the fear for her. And Mm -hmm. so those essays started just coming really organically. Um, Thankfully, you know, in the second half and the third half, I think they shift off of my, they shift away from my children and, and sort of bigger issues of health and aging and, um, the body. But 
when I'm trying to remember when I knew, hey, these are all coming together, um, probably three or four essays in, I, I thought, okay, would people like to read an entire collection on fear in the, in the dark places in our own minds? Would that be too, too much of a downer or would, <laughs> or would folks like to read that? Or just enough of a downer. <laughs> or just enough of a downer. And I, and I just went for it. And then I was really intentional about writing pieces that interconnected with, with those themes. Mm. Yeah. And, you know, one of the, you mentioned research before, and one of the essays, um, I think it's the second essay, um, is about horror movies um, and, like, uh, the fear around watching those. And um, I'm also, like, one of those people who are, like, highly sensitive to horror movies, and I just kind of avoid them uh, at all costs. So <laughs> I felt a little part of myself in there. Um, and, you know, it talks about, you know, simulated violence and, like, how we kind of, like, experience that as as like emotionally uh in the same way and how like parenting just kind of complicates that like if you're already someone like you or i who are kind of you know scared of watching like a horror movie i mean i can i can watch them like i have i just don't want to like i never want to and i know it's it's like horror movies are a lot of people love them and a lot of my friends are really into horror movies and it's just this thing where I don't know. We just <laughs> we're not going to bridge that gap, but um, a lot of the so that essay has a lot of research in it, and I was wondering, you know, as I was reading it, what your process around research was in terms of like, are you someone who's just kind of like reading their interests and then you're sparked to write something on it, or do you find that sometimes you're in the process of writing something and you're like, oh, I need to learn more about X and do that, or is it kind of like you do both of those? It's mostly the latter. It's mostly that I'm writing and I want to know more and I want to understand more. Now with um, the essay you're talking about, Recreationally Terrified, I had researched postmodern slasher films <laughs> in my graduate program. And I was looking at gender roles mostly because I was really interested in the Carol Clover's final girl the last survivor of the slasher movie because I wanted to be tough like that. And I was not, didn't, didn't feel like I would be the last one to survive the monsters attack. I would be the one checking under the bed. So mm -hmm. I spent, a, you know, I researched, I was lucky enough to be in a class that allowed me to research all that stuff. So I had a lot of that in my brain already when I wrote that essay. And I did have to, as I started writing it, research more into John Carpenter's history with the thing. Mm -hmm. But I write the essays first, and then they take me to a place, they take me to a dead end, where I can't answer the questions with my personal experience. And so that's when I seek out other sources of information. And, and usually, and I think this happens to all to all of us, then you find how your own life is represented in the research or fits into the research, which is really exciting for me when that happens, because then I'm getting out of my own little world or my own experience of recreational terror and realizing how I'm connecting to all these other people and their experiences of this, which ultimately makes me feel less alone. I really do try and research and write about things that are having some kind of power over me. Mm. Um, that's not positive, 
and I want to regain some power. And I do that through understanding, uh, working it out, you know, in my writing or my research, understanding why it's having power and what I can do about that. Um, you know, and there's a lot of threads in, in the book, you know, aside from um, violence, right? And like yes. aversion to horror, um, you know, and like one of those really important threads in the book is adoption and like particularly closed adoption. And so you have, you know, in the book, it goes over like, well, you are adopted, you had a closed adoption. Uh, and then you have a biological daughter first, and then later you adopt and you want an open one um, because of your experience, but then you can only do the closed. Um, and then, you know, later in the book, you know, there's an essay where like you have a friend who like makes the comment about how, oh, well, you're less afraid this time because um, it's not, you know, the, it's not biologically yours. And you're like, no, it's because it's my second time <laughs> like, being a parent. Uh, and you kind of uh, negotiating that, like the biology and like, well, yeah, I mean, biology is important. But, you know, on the other hand, like um, y your husband, like, can't believe how much he loves like the daughter right. uh, in a way. And um, so anyway, I I'd love to hear you talk a bit about the thread of closed adoption in the book and, you know, and how for you it impacts like the ultimate concerns of the book with the fear and, and the anxiety? Originally, I wrote the book without talking about Amelia's adoption. And I, I don't, I think I only mentioned my adoption, just mentioned it. And I have a, a bit of a blind spot or have had a bit of a blind spot with how adoption has impacted my life. And it has, it's had a huge impact. And a, a early reader from my book said, why aren't you talking about your issues of abandonment, you know, which is directly tied to your fears that you're going to lose someone you love, that you or someone you love is going to be harmed and you're going to lose them. Like, why aren't you talking about how that is related to adoption? And that probably set me back a whole week just of really sitting with that and thinking about it and wondering why I was trying to say, I'm okay. I'm over my adoption. Everything's fine. I know who my birth parents are. Like I, I, I had to sit with that and realize that, yeah, I have carried this fear of, a, of abandonment and losing the people I love, which I do believe is linked to adoption. How could it not? Um, there's so much research about inside the womb, a baby recognizes its mother's voice, its heartbeat. Um, a fetus or baby will put its hand, you know, on the uterine wall when the mother's talking and does it more often than when anyone else is talking. And there's so much research into the psych the psychological connection. So how could it not affect me when at birth I was taken away from my birth mother who was, you know, not allowed to hold me or, or anything or see me. And then for 30 days I went somewhere that I still haven't got right. an answer to. And then I was adopted. So I had to think about how my experience of a closed adoption and spending most of my life not knowing where I came from and being aware that I was different 
um, and, and dealing with what some people call this, it's been called a primal wound. I don't know if you've heard that term, but mm -hmm. uh, there's a writer who wrote that book and I'm blanking on her name, which is bad, but we just have a lot more knowledge about the trauma that occurs when you separate a birth parent and, and a baby. But I realized that my adoption really was sort of leaking into all these fears that I, that I have. And definitely my fear that I would be separated from you know, when I first had Lily, who was the first biological family member I've ever really truly known and lived with, I was so afraid she'd be taken away from me somehow. Of course that mm -hmm. is, is, you know, goes back to my experience of being adopted and that my fear that I had of losing her wasn't calmed until we adopted Amelia. And it really was calmed. It really did go away, partly because I was so exhausted <laughs> and we had another newborn and I was old. I was <laughs> 42 uh, when she came into our lives. So I was an old mama. Just, you know, you don't have time to, mm -hmm. to obsess and worry when you're just trying to get a couple hours of sleep and, and, and nurture this newborn. But that's when that particular fear went away, which was a relief. And I got to focus on other things in my life and also in the book. And, you know, for me, Amelia really represents, even with this fear, you know, we humans, we, we take these risks to love again. Mm. And Amelia really helped calm those fears. And, and it, it, you know, even if it sounds trite, I don't know, but she did heal something in me. I have a child who is also adopted, you know, and sometimes mm. she'll say, mommy's adopted. I'm adopted. Daddy's not adopted. Sissy's not adopted. <laughs> she kind of figures mm -hmm. out what's going on in the family. Mm -hmm. And she will ask me about my adoption and we'll talk about hers. And for me, it's perfect having yeah. one biological child and one child who's adopted. It, it just feels so whole. Our family feels so whole. Hmm. Yeah. And then going from there, the other thread, right, is like, I mentioned the vulnerability to death and tragedy we all have like at all times and uh, it's compounded of course with the kids and how much you love them and you know this third resonated big with me because I'm also just terrified of everything <laughs> I feel like you know you go over just you know hearing news like oh b baby's drowning and then there's like natural disasters you know random murder teachers confessing to wanting to hurt themselves or like the kids in the class or something like that yes. and like life is just fucking scary it's just absolutely yes. people are terrifying and if people aren't terrifying yes. na nature's terrifying <laughs> and you know you write um you know a lot about fear and like you know to me it's like fear and anxiety like those are the appropriate response <laughs> responses you know today like it, it makes sense like there's there's yes. you know worlds beyond what we can even fathom and then we get these kind of bits and pieces of them like here and there all the time and you know it's like at any moment who knows what can happen to you ah! or so <laughs> yeah, and or that's someone. the terrifying thing right there you know that's terrifying i think parents are the most vulnerable people walking <laughs> around on the planet because you realize if something happened to my child life would never be the same mm -hmm. for me. Never. Right. And 
I do think those of us with our eyes open, you know, we have to confront that and everything you're talking about. If you pay too much attention to the news, you'll never leave your, you'll never allow your children to leave the house. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a, it's an amazing feat of resilience that human beings can take in all this stuff, the school shootings and the natural disasters and climate change and pedophilic teachers and, 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 and still function as well as we do and still have as much hope as we have. Yeah. And, you know, like you write a lot about fear, but I think it takes a lot of courage to write about the fears you have, like to actually admit them to yourself on paper and kind of to wrestle with them instead of just kind of sweep them under the rug. So I'm wondering, like a bit about in your process, like confronting fear, like, do you feel like when you're writing at times, like you can feel yourself averting the scary thing? And then you kind of have to like in the process, like convince yourself to go after it. Or do you kind of like in your prep before you write a piece, just kind of like set it aside. So, yeah, I guess what I'm asking is talk about fear as a part of your process. So two and two things I want to say about that. And the first, and this is not answering the question in the order. So you write a book and then you submit it and hopefully it's accepted. And then there's a period of time before the book comes out, like, could, can even be a year that you haven't that you haven't thought about the book or read it or maybe the things in the book. And w when I received my advanced review copy of the book, and well before that, when I was doing the edits and things, reading some of those fears reignited them a little mm -hmm. bit. Fears that I thought I had put to bed uh, were reignited a little bit. That was a process for me. Like I thought I had, I was beyond, beyond that. But when I wrote, for instance, the essay about Lily and how I became sort of obsessed with all I'd heard about bathtub drownings and um, which was really just repre representing my fear that I couldn't keep her alive, that something would happen to her. Um, I wrote it when I was in it, like I was in that fear of is, some, is something going to happen to my child? What if I trip when I'm going down the stairs with a basket of laundry and she's in my arms? Or what if she has sudden infant death syndrome? Or what if she falls? I heard a, a friend's cousin's child slipped on the ice, fell backward, cracked their head and they died. You know, you hear those stories and I can't brush those stories off and maybe you can't either as a parent, like <laughs> I, I'm dead. It stops me cold and I have to really work hard not to feel that pain um, for that parent. It's just the worst thing you, it, that could happen to anyone. So when I was writing the secret of water, I was really in it. I was really in that fear. What if I can't get this child safely into adulthood? What if something happens? What are the stats on this? What are the stats on that? What are the chances? You know, just obsessing. And when I write, I suppose I feel a false sense of control. I'm writing the ending and it's a happy ending. Mm -hmm. You know, Lily's alive and healthy and I'm getting to control the narrative and that definitely helps me overcome the fear mm -hmm. yeah i definitely feel a sense of like 
seeking control and like as an impulse to write where like um you know the fears just kind of build up <laughs> and and build up and then you know it's like i can't control any of this and then so i'm going to put words here and at least just put that and then i can control what it how i'm like communicating and perceiving it or something or shaping it in some way and it's like comforting while i'm doing it because yes. it feels like it's important I can just focus on that and it becomes not itself it becomes I convince myself oh maybe it's art it's not <laughs> it's not me processing so maybe I can make this into art um yeah so I, I can def I definitely relate to that feeling of like processing fear through writing because it is a sense of control you know and I also you know when I say you know I think the writing you do takes courage I think it's also because it's uh writing about family um and writing about mm -hmm. people close to you um you know and your dad obviously is an important thread in the book um and then it was interesting you know as we talked about briefly before that i like the ar like the advanced copy that i read is slightly different than the one that you can buy and that everyone else is going to get because you took your parents last names out of the book so i saw them with them in there but no one else <laughs> we'll hopefully. see their, yeah hopefully <laughs> their last name so i you know talk a bit about you know what that was like for you <laughs> having them in there and then at some point being like no we need to pull the plug on this i i can't keep their name in there i don't <laughs> can't keep them identified right so what a big oversight on my part i never named my parents first names or their characters last names but what i did was name my favorite grandmother's lap. I, I, I called her by her last name um, because she's a major character in the book. And I don't know why it didn't occur to me anywhere along the book production process because I thought I'd done my due diligence by not naming my parents' name. Mm -hmm. You know, what a bonehead thing. And it, it, it was a middle of the night kind of, my brain turned on while I was sleeping and I sat up and I realized, oh my God, everyone's going to know who my parents are, going to know their identity. People are going to be able to put this together if they want to. And my parents have read the book and they've always been supportive of me, but they also don't want to talk about it and would prefer it not be something that's brought to their attention in, in their day-to-day mm. -day life. So I panic emailed my, um, was it the project editor and explained the situation. And what I did was they had already given me the final copy edits and they said, this is, this is the standard. I got the standard form letter. This is not an opportunity to change anything. Mm -hmm. unless there are mistakes, um, egregious mistakes. And in general, our authors have something like maybe 30 changes. I can't remember what the number was, but it was low that they find. So I went through and I counted up all the last names and all the mistakes. And I used the search and find function. I cross-checked everything, double-checked everything. And I was like, if I change all these last names, and there's a way to do it without changing, you know, the text, the text isn't going to wrap around to the next page. 
I still came under what their cap was. <laughs> so I figured all that out before I, before I wrote her. And I really sweat over that and, and, you know, did lose some sleep and she was like, no problem. We'll make the change. Yeah. So it was that easy, but the advanced review copies were already, um, you know, in production. So I couldn't get them out of, out of that copy, but I did feel such great relief because I don't want to hurt anyone in my writing and with what I write. And I, there's that great quote in To Tell It Slant about how our motives must be more than about exposing family and secrets. Mm -hmm. um, that we have to have, you know, perspective on our experience. And like you were talking about earlier, it has to be art. We have to be pushing into the realm of literature. And I thought about that a lot when I wrote about my father and the very difficult relationship we had when we were, when I was growing up, because that relationship has changed. You know, you bear witness to this part of your life that's in this book, and then life goes on and relationships change. Sometimes there's loss. Someone I wrote about in the book died. You know, there are things you can't predict. And so who my father is now in our relationship is very different than our relationship was when I was a child. And what about writing about husband and kids? Um, you know, what's, what's the process there for you? Because I know that can be a really sticky situation. You know, what to include, what not to include. How are you representing your spouse? In the, like, uh, how are you representing your kids? Worrying, what are your kids going to think about this? Um, yes. Stuff like that. Yeah, I wonder if you talk a little bit about kind of processing the fact that you write about, you know, yourself and your immediate family. Those are really, really hard questions, I know. Michael. <laughs> I'm asking because I need to know. I want to know. <laughs> well, Lily is a newborn to about six in the book. So most of the stuff I write about her, I would say is pretty benign. Right. Yeah. Except, except, and, and she knows she hasn't read it because I tell her it's an adult book because mm -hmm. this is the big exception. I did write about a couple of times where my dad's temper re reared its ugly head with her. And there, there are things she doesn't know about what my sister and I experienced when we were growing up. And when she reads this book, she will know. Mm -hmm. And she loves her grandfather. And she's going to have a lot of feelings about that. Right. And she may be really upset with me that I put this in a book, put these parts of him, but it, secrets are poisonous. And so is intergenerational <laughs> trauma. And I don't think women should be quiet about abuse they've endured. And my dad and I had some really honest conversations when I wrote the, the first failed book, right? That was even more honest about certain things in our relationship that said more. And he read that too. And I don't know if we would have had all those conversations had he not been upset about it and we had not started talking about it. So some good did come from being honest. Right. These things happened. Why did they happen? I'm angry they happened. You know, Not that you have to write a book to have the conversations with family members, but which is all to say it's really complicated and it, it does still make me a little uncomfortable or obviously I wouldn't have 
asked for the last name <laughs> to be removed from it. Mm-hmm. Um, so Lily is going to have feelings about what I'm saying about her grandfather. I feel like she's 11 now, so I can't write about her anymore. Mm. I mean, and I think I mostly wrote about me in the book and my experiences of motherhood Yeah, and was careful not to write about things that would be her stories. Now with Amelia, I did reveal that she's adopted. We've never kept that a secret, but not everybody knows. Mm. Right. And so she may have feelings about that too. Um, everybody knew in my immediate world because one day I was not pregnant and the next day I had a newborn. So you cannot hide adoption. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and I wouldn't, and I wouldn't want to, the, the thinking on all that has changed, but I do realize that my children may read what I've written and, and they're going to have their own feelings about it. And I hope I have the generosity of spirit and grace to accept those feelings. Yeah. What about writing about a spouse? So he's read everything too. Some he's he he's a good reader. He's helped me edit some <laughs> things actually. Um, and the most revealing thing I think I wrote about John was the neural pathways to love about s- s- turbulent, not turbulent, just some bumps in our marriage, some uncertainties in our marriage. Mm-hmm. Um, well, that's a fantastic essay. You know, I mean, I I love as I mentioned, I love the book. Um, and I enjoyed every essay and there are many fantastic ones, but that one <laughs> as, um, you know, I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old and I'm married and, you know, and the essay talks about, you know, all the changes in the brain and in the body and the relationships due to, you know, those <laughs> changes, you know, in you. And then also like the very real changes of like learning how we act or react as parents and like oftentimes very different and the clashes. And then I think it's in that one too, where you talk a bit about like all the stuff about fear and you're like, talk about kind of like right on the other side is like love. Yeah. I know I interrupted you a little bit, but I wonder if I, if you'd talk a little bit about, you know, that essay and that idea a little bit more. Yeah. I wrote that essay also, Okay, this is interesting. I started writing it when we were kind of, I think it's interesting. We were kind of getting on the other side of it. We were on the other side of the ebb and flow. And I I do think that's so natural in relationships. We don't talk about it enough that you get in these places where you're like, oh, domesticity, what's wrong with our marriage? It's so (laughs) boring or I'm so restless. Should I be looking outside, you know, outside of this union? And then there are times when you feel really connected and really close and, and it ebbs and flows. And, um, I don't think there's enough, enough, enough honest conversations about that and how natural it is. And for us also to understand the scientific reasons, it's nothing wrong with you or me. Like there are scientific reasons for why we Mm -hmm. go through these stages and, some people might not like that because it takes the magic away of yeah. falling I in think, love. And... I think the knowledge of it helps, though. <laughs> you know, like if a marriage is going to last, like you have to you have to really understand that that's part of the process, too. Like some of it can yes. be explained, even though the explanation doesn't really answer, <laughs> I think, the bigger questions, but it helps kind of have a reason for you know more than one reason i guess for you know what's going on and that it's a natural thing and like it it doesn't 
mean anything more than like this is life <laughs> like this is human relationships exactly like this is normal you're okay this is how it's supposed to be um at least for a while but when i was writing that piece that was and and john has read it and i think i try real hard to focus on some of the best parts of him when i'm writing i'm and you know he's <laughs> handsome and i mean i do, i do put all that in there because that's how i see him but also because i love him and i want him to be okay appearing in the book and even though i'm honest about mm -hmm. some of the ways we do clash and i was honest um there are always things that i will not write about so for everything that's in that right. book there's a whole nother book book's worth at least that's not in there you know at least probably 10 years worth of books worth that, you know, that is not going to be in the book. So, but when I was writing that piece, that's when I got the call at work that there was a three day old yeah. baby girl. So I just started writing that. That's when hmm. Amelia came into our lives, which changed the relationship between me and John once again, because then you just become partners trying to keep uh -huh. everyone alive. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, and meanwhile, um, in the book, there's chronic illness. And so when you get um, diagnosed with rheumatoid, ar um, rheumatoid arthritis, you know, and there's essays about dealing with it, you know, and then, you know, essay about suffering and your grandmother, who you mentioned earlier, and kind of this idea of like not being afraid. And I think it's interesting to think about um, this idea of not being afraid, like in connection to um, chronic illness, which you can talk about in a little bit. But I also am interested in thinking about that idea with where you actually choose to end the collection. Because okay. you actually, where you end the collection in this place of kind of fear, right? Uh -huh. Where the last essay is about um, uh, running and how you like to run, but it starts on like, um, miss, like a missing woman who was like last, who like went for a run. And you're kind of like processing the fact that you also run and like you're, you know, like we were talking earlier, like vulnerable at all times to like who knows what um, that we can't fathom or or that's happened before, you know, and then you're processing this and then like the place where the collection ends is, well, now your daughter's into track and you <laughs> and you end just kind of, you know, on that idea. So I'd wonder, I know it's a lot in a question, but I wondered if you talk a little bit about, you know, chronic illness um and you know th that relationship to fear but also the idea of not being afraid like you know obviously being very attracted to that idea and coming from your grandmother who had such an influence on you uh and then choosing this is where i end is back <laughs> kind of on the sphere Okay. I took notes while you were talking. So hopefully I'll remember. Yeah. Sorry. That's a big one. Well, I wish I didn't have to write the chronic illness mm. essay. That's for sure. I was diagnosed like in the middle of writing the book and, you know, first of all, I just want to tell you listeners, I am not a person who walks around afraid all day long. Right. right? Um, these are things I do think about, but I'm an optimist, which, you know, if you can, open your eyes to all these fears and, and realistically look at them and still be optimistic and have fun. Like I say, you're succeeding. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but I, 
the chronic, yeah, I had the diagnosis, I guess when I was about 40. So was I writing the book? No, I was diagnosed before. Well, it all was sort of overlapping and either as you age or if you have a chronic illness, you realize your body is not going to return to its previous state of health. And I do think fear, our fears are all wrapped up in fear of pain, fear of losing people we love and chronic illness started representing all of that for me because of the pain, because of the ways it was changing my body and an autoimmune disease left untreated can look kind of like body horror. You, you mm. can have bent your joints, uh, bent out of shape, have to have knees replaced. Um, and I just saw a lot of parallels between the things I was afraid of in my youth and the things that this chronic illness represented in my own body, not to mention that I have a biological child now. And my chronic illness has a genetic component. It's all in the birth, my birth father's side of the family. So Lily has this, you know, this, um, disposition, genetic predisposition. So that is really, it's really sad, but it doesn't mean that it's going to happen. She might yeah. have the gene. It doesn't mean it's going to turn on. Um, so here I am in this body that I can't control, which of course is related to my fears and it's aging faster than it should because of my chronic illness. Um, I don't know if I'm answering your question very well, but it is no, definitely <laughs> re related to, you know, my fear of intruders was that somebody would break in and harm my body, harm yeah. me, harm my body, do something awful. And then here your body is harming your body. Yes. <laughs> you I'm know? not afraid of yeah. intruders now. It's my own immune system <laughs> right. that is attacking me. And of course, there are a lot of theories about immune disorders in women and is it related to trauma from childhood or is it related to this or that but we don't really know there's a lot of interesting research and i do not like when we sort of blame women for their own disease and mm -hmm. illness um but there is some interesting connection between early childhood trauma and chronic illness later in life yeah and so the the second part was about you know being attracted to this idea you know, of not being afraid, but then still yes. choosing to end the collection in a place of fear. I, I, I loved it personally as an ending. Um, I was wondering how you were going to, you know, where you were going to kind of end what would be, you know, kind of the focus. And I was very satisfied ending <laughs> at that oh, place good. personally. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about, you know, because earlier you mentioned you know, a previous project, not feeling like you or being like overly, you know, I know you're optimistic, but like overly optimistic or like optimistic to like a fault in your opinion. So choosing to end not optimistic. <laughs> well, I guess it's, it's not that it's not optimistic because I do feel like there's a processing there that happens. Um, but anyway, talk a little bit about, you know, the choice to end there. I wanted, so the don't be afraid was my grandmother's advice. She was she lived her life like that. You know, don't be afraid, try everything once. And I love that. And I do think I've had many adventures because of 
my grandmother and her contributions to my childhood. I, okay, there's this essay, The Courage of Turtles by Edward Hoagland. I hope his first name is Edward. Last name is definitely Hoagland. And it's a, it's a nature essay and it's about um, his various sort of interactions with turtles and also the ways that humans harm them, either through construction and development or horrifyingly when you paint on turtle shells, the shells can stop growing and then the turtle like suffocates in its own shell. Um, the, the shell stops growing, but the body keeps growing. It's horrible. But I re- I'll never forget how he ended that piece. It wasn't, it's not a happy ending. He, he has this turtle that he thought he could, he, and he's a nature enthusiast that he could um, sort of save and keep in his house and he can't. And at the end, he like tosses it into this body of water and then realizes his mistake too late that the turtle's not going to be able to get out and it's, um, you know, going to drown. And I thought, I talk about that essay with my students and we talk about how it ends with a call to action. It is not an essay that ends with, well, everything's okay. You don't have to worry about environmental conservation or endangered species because this essay has a happy ending. Instead, it ends with you're unsettled and maybe you feel like you have to do something. And I, as Lily is getting older and I'm sort of aging out of the age bracket where women are sexually harassed or assaulted or and she's sort of aging in that's what i was thinking about when i was ending the book because there are a lot of things to be scared to be scared about when you are sending your daughters you know into their teenage years and onto college campuses where we know that the incidence of sexual assault has not gone down. Um, I think about that stuff and it it does anger me and I, I wanna know what I can do about it and how I can keep my children safe. And so when I wrote that last essay, I wanted it to be hopeful because it's a beautiful thing that my daughter is growing up. My daughters are growing up, but it, for a parent, it's also, there's a little bit of fear as they as they grow up, they will be introduced. There'll be new things introduced that, as a mom, I can't control because I can't be everywhere at once. And I wanted that. Um, I wanted that contradiction there at the end, that ambivalence, um, that in between lim- the liminal space of that. I wanted to leave the reader with that. And, and with the sense that, man, we really need to do more to protect our, the world's daughters. Like, we really need to do more. Like, why is this stuff still happening mm-hmm. as frequently as it does? Yeah. And so first book's out of the way. I know it takes a long time for it to come out, as you said. So have you been working on something else? Are you starting to work on something now? Or are you kind of like in a break because putting a book out can, I, I understand, can be exhausting <laughs> from what I hear? I am working on something. Not right now, though. I haven't worked on, I haven't actually gotten to work on it in several months because of um, summer teaching and kids home and also 
you know, stuff on this book, but um, I have a few essays for the next book, which I promise to myself to make more, to be a happier book. <laughs> um, not that this book doesn't have a lot of happiness in it, but I don't know if it's going to end up that way. So it is going to be, I think, don't hold me to this, about mothers and daughters and how we love each other, how we also abandon and fail mm -hmm. each other, and a, a lot, a lot, a lot about adoption. Mm. So one of those pieces is called um, Runaway Mother, and, and it's already been published. Um, and it, it was a it was about a mom who left her children for a certain period of time and then came back. So I I am really interested in those relationships when because of adoption or because of you know some other circumstance, daughters and their mothers are separated and then reunited. Yeah, I'm I'm interested in investigating that. That's my conversation with Jody Kiesner. Go check out her book, Under My Bed, and other essays. And don't forget to check out our books, too, over at autofocuslift.com slash books. We appreciate that. Okay, that's it. Thanks for listening. Till next time.